right, thank you, Tez. So uh, this might come as a shock to many of you coming from a Christian who is doing full-time church ministry, and at the risk of being labeled as a heretic, I got to confess that I'm not a big fan of Christmas, okay? Don't get me wrong, I'm really stoked about the fact that Jesus was born as a human, but I simply do not care for at all about how Christmas is celebrated nowadays, right? It seems to me just like a commercialization of something that's supposedly Christian, like the most prolific way the world has ever been making money off of Jesus. So I really could do without never again seeing another Santa Claus or hearing jingle bells in my life. Although my wife and I do have a Christmas tree and are getting matching Christmas pajamas because, well, marriage, and I made a promise to Jesus that I would lay down my life for the sake of my wife. Okay, so let me just first acknowledge that I am fully in the minority, and I'm not saying that any of you should agree with me. I'm probably a little too cynical about this, but I'm just confessing here that basically I'm the Grinch, right, who has a heart two sizes too small and would rather be in his cave while everyone is excited about Christmas, right? I really resonate a lot with that guy, if you guys have seen the movie. But if you haven't, I'm sorry, because I'm going to spoil it to you right now, because what the Grinch does is that he tries to ruin Christmas for this entire town by stealing all of their presents and decorations. But after he does that, and just before he pushes all of the Christmas stuff off a cliff, he sees that the people of this town are still celebrating Christmas because Christmas is not actually about the decorations and presents, but it's about each other. And after he saw that, the Grinch's heart grew three sizes, and he ends up celebrating Christmas with the people of the town, right? It's a cute story. I think so, at least. And I think Dr. Seuss, the guy who wrote The Grinch, was on to something. Maybe he got something partly right. That what makes Christmas the most wonderful time of the year, supposedly, is something much more than presents and decoration. Now, the text that we'll be studying today is one of the best stories in the Bible that shows us step by step about how one actually grows into meaningfully appreciating the meaning of Christmas. That led to, actually, the first ever, and in my book, the best ever still, Christmas Carol ever composed. So we're continuing in our series on Luke's account of the birth of our Lord, and we will be looking and meditating at Mary's visit to Elizabeth and the Magnificat. From Luke chapter 1, verse 39 to 56, let us hear the word of the Lord. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting Mary of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. 
And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what is spoken to her heart from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has, grown, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Friends, well, we just read the story of how a teenaged, unwed mother from a humble background, someone from the lowest level in her society, was processing how she was about to be the mother of the Messianic King, resulting in this most magnificent poem of praise. And I think the Christmas story allowed Mary shift from shame into singing in three stages. Three stages that we can go through as well, which I think can really make Grinches like me appreciate the true beauty of Christmas again. So yeah, our three points today, and I try to be clever by making the three points here flow in a sentence. Christmas will lead to caroling when, one, we are helping each other to see the truth. Two, that each one of us are truly blessed. And three, to be part of God's upside-down kingdom. We are helping to see each other the truth that each of us are truly blessed to be part of God's upside-down kingdom. That will make us carol during Christmas. May the Holy Spirit help us to see the beauty of what he's inspired to the mother of our Lord to sing. Point one. Christmas will lead to caroling when we are helping each other to see the truth. So the focus of the sermon today is actually in Mary's song in verses 46 and following. But we can't really skip over her really interesting visit to Elizabeth's house here in verses 39-35. You see, because though Mary did show in verse 38 in the passage before that she was willing to accept the role that God assigned her uh, to have in his plans, it seemed at least she was going like, okay, right? so this is happening, I'm going to be pregnant. And she didn't resist it, which is a huge step in itself. But she didn't lift up the song of praise immediately after a supernatural angel visits her. See what I'm saying? It could have been like angel visited her, then she sings, and then if she needed to, she went to Elizabeth. But Luke very intentionally specifies here that this only happens after she goes and visits her human auntie, Elizabeth. And I find that so fascinating. And this is amplified if we take into account that Elizabeth didn't live next door to Mary. Where did Elizabeth live? In Jerusalem, 
Where did Mary live? In Nazareth, like over a hundred kilometers away. And this would be something pretty abnormal, actually, for a girl who was betrothed to be wed. They would live in seclusion at home until her wedding day. But Mary made this journey, this long journey. And the text doesn't tell us that anyone, that the angel or anybody else told her to do that. As far as we know, this was totally her idea. And the Bible did say that she made haste to Jerusalem. So Mary thought that this meeting with Auntie Liz was pretty urgent, and she had to hustle. So what's the rush, right? Like, why would Mary do that? Like, didn't she have any family or friends in Nazareth she could talk to? Well, the text doesn't actually specify, but what makes the most sense to me is that because Mary was told by the angel that God caused Elizabeth to be pregnant unexpectedly in her old age, Mary thought to herself, she is the only person in the world who can possibly understand me. So this young woman, who I imagined would be freaking out right now and feeling the weight of the world in her shoulders, responded rightly by taking the initiative and making effort to seek fellowship with people who shares in her understanding of God's purposes so that she can make sense of her experience that led ultimately to this overflow of praise, you see. Because how else did Elizabeth help Mary do this by giving her, aside from giving her this gospel ministry? Isn't that what's happening in verses 41 to 44? Elizabeth gave her comfort by using some actually impressively sound Trinitarian theology affirming her faith that she believed a word from the Lord, but that she was also was carrying and will be giving birth to the Lord. And Elizabeth encouraged her repeatedly, affirming to her that she is blessed, and the child that she will be giving birth to is also blessed, countering all of the naysayers and all their doubts in her heart of the people who were going to call her adulterous and this child illegitimate, which I'm sure Mary was foreseeing and deeply dreading at this point. And in all this, Elizabeth was actually being quite counterculturally humbling herself. Compared to Mary, Elizabeth is much higher social status, being older and the wife of a priest, no less. But she was willing to recognize this unwed teen mom as the mother of her Lord, affirming what the angel said to Mary earlier in verse 28, that she is indeed the favored one. So I think Luke here is showing us that it was after the gospel truth that God revealed to her was affirmed by another person, was it possible for Mary not only to have this theoretically accepted in her mind, or her will moved to be willing to do it, but for her heart to actually love it and rejoice in it. Now for me, what this highlights, friends, is how indispensable gospel fellowship is with your Christian family. Even the mother of our Lord needed it to facilitate her worship too. You see, 
God designed it such that we are supposed to edify and affirm each other in the gospel. It was part of the plan that it is through other people that we progress towards greater assurance and understanding and appreciation of our own calling in our lives, of God's calling in our lives. And as was the case of Mary, she required someone else who shared in her conviction and can understand what she was going through in order that whatever doubts or anxiety she might have had about this whole thing might be calmed and silenced, that her soul is now freed up to worship the Lord. So friends, every single one of us needs an Elizabeth. Because the Christian life does make us believe in some crazy stuff, guys. Our entire religion is based off of a guy who was born of a virgin and was raised to life. It defies every law of nature and every human intuition that we were educated with. It holds us up to what seems to be often like impossible ethical standards. It makes us deny ourselves of some carnal desires that are in our hearts that the world so guiltlessly and proudly indulges itself in. And it actually requires us to kill our pride and take on a posture of humility. So people who have never encountered the Lord could never get this. No matter how well we explain ourselves. Yet we live around them. Every day we work and partner with institutions that don't necessarily share our values and we're getting bombarded constantly by values that are contrary to our own. Being told that we're not open-minded enough or that somehow we're missing out and constantly having priorities imposed upon us that distracts us or what, and hinders us from what God actually calls us to do. So we need other people who get what we are going through. Who's been through or even perhaps are right now currently going through the same thing so that they can help us realize that we're not actually crazy or deceived when we follow Jesus. Oh, on the contrary, we are blessed. We're blessed and highly favored. But that fact can be easily forgotten if we're not surrounding ourselves with blessed people. So do you have an Elizabeth in your life? And if you don't, I know for a fact that you can find some blessed people here in this church, probably sitting next to you. And you know how I know? Because you guys have blessed me. And the chances are that there's someone in this room right now who has been where you are, who understands your struggle. And if you reach in, take the initiative, and make efforts like Mary did, you might just find your Elizabeth, and your soul can also be led to magnify the Lord in ways you could never have imagined. Sounds great, doesn't it? So let's take a look at what that looked like for Mary. This is point two. 
Christmas will lead to caroling when we are helping each other to see the truth that each of us are truly black. Now, let's look at the actual song that Mary sang. And you might have noticed that the song is divided into two parts, verses 46 to 50 and 51 to 55. The first part, Mary sings about what God has done for her personally, and later she sings about what God does in a global scale. And these two parts of the song are what's going to be discussed in the next two points. Right? So let's focus on how Mary was personally affected when the significance of Christmas dawns on her first. So first, it says that my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, right? These aren't two different things, but these are rich biblical terms that refer to a human's innermost being, the most basic core of who we are. So it wasn't that Mary's intellect made sense of God's coming. It wasn't that simply she was emotionally moved by this fact, but the Bible is trying to say that her whole person, everything within her, is overflowing with rejoicing in the Lord. And that now she's existentially aware of God's goodness and presence in a whole new way. God to her is now bigger and more real than ever. He is magnified. Verse 46 says, But what is it about God that Mary now sees which made her heart overflow in worship? Verses 48 and 40, uh, 47 and 48 tells us clearly that it is because now that she sees that God is her Savior. And what kind of Savior is He? One who looks upon the poor condition of his servant, blesses her, and does great things for her. In other words, it is the incongruity, the gap between the gift that God gives and who she is that completely amazed her. She understood that in the eyes of the world, she was nobody. She didn't come from any noble family. Her nation was under the occupation of some Roman invaders, and she's done or never done anything honorable that made her worthy to be chosen to be the one who's going to take care of the Messiah. And unlike some of our cousins and the other Christian tradition beliefs, she was not perfect or sinless. And the song itself shows that Mary needed a savior. But nonetheless, whatever, despite whatever limitations she had, God worked a complete reversal in her life where she was once humble or perhaps literally here in the Greek in a humiliated state. She will from now on be called blessed by all generations, having the highest honor and dignity. And this happens by the mighty God choosing willingly to intervene in her life and to go to battle for her. That description of God being the mighty one in verse 49 are echoes of the Old Testament, of how God is described as this mighty warrior who is there to liberate his people. And it totally blew Mary's mind that this God would be her champion that she gets to be so close to the action as this unfolds. 
You see, this subverts every expectation. Armies would fight for kings or those with wealth or status. Witnessing incredible things are experiences reserved only for the rich and powerful. But here is little Mary, who had nothing of note. But the Almighty God saw her and said, I choose you. And friends, the beautiful claim of the gospel is that this blessing that was extended to Mary to be at the same time saved and involved in God's work of saving, this blessing is extended to us. This is what I think verse 50 is all about. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. You see, her experience of God's mercy in the story of God's people, highlighting the fact that this is indeed God's MO. How He is a God who does not ignore or abuse the weak like every other human and earthly ruler. But he is a God who will always give mercy to those who fear him. And fearing God in the Bible, friends, is not like we're afraid of God, like that he's threatening us somehow. But at risk of oversimplification, it's really just the Bible's way of talking about seeing God for who he really is. So to summarize the overall point of Mary's song here is that God blessed Mary even though she was nobody. And we can consider ourselves blessed too because we can now see him for who he really is as a God who consistently remembers the weak and loves to elevate us high above our station. Now, here's why might be difficult for us to appreciate it. Because our church in particular are, is made up of a lot of very capable and competent people. And we live in a meritocratic society, don't we? Where the ones who are most competent and hardworking are the ones who become influential and powerful. And we live in, in a historical context and come from backgrounds that has much more upward social mobility than Mary could have ever imagined. So while we can totally imagine why someone like Mary feels stuck where she is, the same is not true of us. In fact, we've studied and worked so hard in our lives in order to be a blessed person, haven't we? We earned our degree. We earned our position. We earned our lifestyle and assets. And I don't want to minimize the effort that we've put in to accomplish and get these things. But the reality is our industry, our hard work and competence can actually be misleading. Leading us to feel like we are full and saying, who is the Lord? This is why, friends, in the gospel, the gospel of Luke especially, portrays those the ones who have power, the ones who have riches, are going to be the ones who struggle the most with the coming kingdom of God. Jesus tells us explicitly that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man 
to go through the gates of the kingdom of God. And this is why the first beatitude starts with, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And this poverty of spirit is none other than this emptying of self-reliance. This recognition that whatever material possession we have or whatever earthly position we hold doesn't make us better than anyone. All we have and all we are is from God and apart from Him, we are nothing. Being completely dependent on God's goodness, yet utterly undeserving of it. Realizing that, friends, the more we internalize this reality and we come to terms with it, brothers and sisters, this is what will actually free us to see God more clearly than ever and elevate us into deeper worship and intimacy than we can have ever thought possible. So how, how's that going to happen? Okay, there's a lot to it. But at least one layer of it is discussed in the second half of Mary's song. How living in the light of God, of the fact that God is establishing a new kind of kingdom where everything is upside down. Just point three. Christmas will lead to caroling when we are helping each other to see the truth that each of us are blessed to be a part of God's upside down kingdom. So we see in the second half of the song, verses 51 to 55, Mary sings about the implication of what God is about to do for her at a global scale. Right? And here she is echoing Old Testament passages like Hannah's song in 1 Samuel or Psalms like Psalm 113, which I think helps us see how through this no-name teenage girl from Nazareth becoming the mother of a Savior, the essence of the gospel is made clear. How when God's mercy shows up, everything will be turned upside down. And the song tells us that there is at least three stages to this. There's the proud, the ones who think that they are better than other people, they're going to be scattered. The mighty rulers who think they have the right to impose their will on other people, they will be brought down from their thrones. And the rich, the people who think they're entitled to hoard the possessions for themselves, they will be left empty. Meanwhile, the lowly, those who think they're not worth anything, they will be lifted high. The hungry ones, the ones for whom life has been unkind and seems like they're always lacking what they need, they will be satisfied with the best things. And not, and not necessarily earthly things, but certainly the much more valuable and better heavenly things that will keep us in a state of blessedness no matter what early things we lack. Because there will be this reversal on a global scale. Because this is how God works. He is always acting on behalf of the lowly and needy. He will help us with the strength of his arm. And this is like a pattern of how God's been working throughout the history of his people. The story 
the upside-downness of God's kingdom. Like if you recall the story of King David, for example, he was the runt, the smallest one in the family. His father didn't even think about uh, presenting him to Samuel. But he is the one who is exalted as king and becomes a man after God's own heart. Meanwhile, Saul, the tall, handsome guy who looks like what you would expect a king to be, he gets brought low. Or how an old, childless couple wandering around the desert, they become the family of Israel and become the carriers of God's promise and covenant on earth. Lifting up the lowly is how God works. This is why the song closes with why God does this, which Tazar beautifully explains actually in the liturgy. He tells this because he has promised to us. He covenantally bound himself to a bunch of nobodies and chose to ride with us. God never chose his people because we are worthy. In fact, we and every single people, person God has chosen, consistently shows that they are unworthy. But God chose to hold up his end of the bargain, to hold up his promise, simply, exclusively, because of his mercy. And don't misunderstand, friends, okay? God isn't trying to start some political revolution. He doesn't intend, like, intend to make some coup d'etat where the powerful are overthrown and the poor now get to take over these positions that they never had access to. Rather, God intends to subvert the entire social order, all the structures and powers that perpetuates the distinctions between the haves and the have-nots, opposing whatever it is that excludes the poor and favors the rich, and he's doing this not by violence or war like the earthly powers do, but by becoming poor and weak himself and showing that the highest glory is given through vulnerability and weakness. This is shown a bit through the story of Mary, but fully and most gloriously through Mary's son, who being in form of God, the most wealthy and powerful being in the universe, he humbled himself by becoming the weakest and most vulnerable, beginning his life as a single cell and then as a helpless baby and enduring an entire life of rejection and abject homeless poverty and ending in a death of betrayal and humiliation as a criminal on the cross, not because of any sins of his own, but exactly on behalf of those who rejected and betrayed him. Friends, Jesus Christ, experience the absolute worst of the systems of the world. Yet because he was faithful and remained sinless through it all and remained faithful and committed to the mission of the Heavenly Father, he was raised from the grave and I was seated at the heavenlies, given the name above every name, such that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. This 
is our God. This is the highest glory that we now get to share in. And that, Covenant City Church, is what Christmas is all about. At least according to the mother of Jesus. So, as we partake in the festivities of this month and gather with our loved ones, let us remember, first and foremost, the grace of God to his undeserving people. And let us not neglect how the meaning of Christmas can not only be appreciated and celebrated in the month of December, but in every single day we live as Christians. Because the best way to celebrate the meaning of Christmas isn't actually in the walls of the church or at home under the mistletoe. Rather, it is whenever we follow Jesus and voluntarily leave our places of comfort in order to reach out to the needy, in order to give them dignity and honor. It is when we actually together live with this upside-down ethic, the kingdom of God, where the rich are humble and the poor are exalted, knowing that we ourselves are only blessed because of the mercies of God that are new every morning. It is then when we participate in lifting each other up and giving each other dignity and honor, will our shrunken hearts grow and we will appreciate more fully what God has done, not only for ourselves, but for the world. Seeing this grace is what's going to get us caroling. So, if somehow, through what I've said today, my limited, imperfect words, Somehow you become aware of your poverty of spirit and you're starting to realize just how much you need the Lord. I tell you this day, friends, that you are blessed. And if you commit the trust in Him alone and repent of all the ways you've tried to seek your own blessing, you too can live the life of a blessed person having complete assurance that no matter what happens to you, the Lord will never neglect you and will always be intending to exalt you and fill you with good things. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Blessed are you, the Lord our God, creator of heaven and earth, king of the universe, who have committed to bless us undeserving people with gifts that are so valuable that it surpasses our imagination or understanding. Lord, you always give us more than we can ever ask or think. So Lord, humble our hearts. Allow us to see our limitations and the futility of our efforts of seeking our blessings. And let us see the beauty of what it is you actually offer through your Son, eternal peace complete assurance, and a place in your heavenly kingdom. Let this be our treasure and the most beautiful things in our heart that gives us hope. And may this guide every decision and every perception we have about the earthly possessions we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.